a tragic but not entirely understood incident called the Wickenburg Massacre happened on the morning of November 5, 1871. In brief, a stagecoach heading from Wickenburg toward San Bernardino, California, by way of Ehrenberg, was attacked, with six people killed, including a prominent 22-year-old journalist, author, and poet named Frederick Loring. The two survivors, William Kruger and Molly Shepard, told a story of the coach being set upon by natives, possibly Apache, and they managed to escape by the skin of their teeth, though both were wounded in the attempt. An army investigation blamed the Yavapais, recently settled on the Camp Date Creek Reservation. The rumors began floating around immediately that it had actually been Mexican bandits dressed as Yavapais. But convinced that the attackers were the genuine article, Lieutenant Colonel George Crook went to Date Creek to confront the tribe. During these talks, a plot was hatched by the Yavapai to kill Crook, which was only unsuccessful because a Wallapai man passed word of the ambush to the colonel before it could happen. But a fierce firefight did break out that saw both sides backing off for the moment. Now, many modern historians think that the Yavapai had nothing to do with the massacre at all, and point out a number of inconsistencies with the narrative. For example, none of the guns, ammunition, horses, blankets, or other items were taken from the site of the massacre. And since the Yavapai, much like the Apache, were raiders, these would have been taken for sure. What was actually missing was said to be gold, either in private hands, or, if you believe state historian Marshall Trimble, in the form of a $100,000 army payroll a payroll that happened to be in the care of, wait for it, survivor William Kruger. Suspicion did turn toward Kruger and to Molly Shepard, who was a notable prostitute and madam who had just sold her bordello in Prescott for tens of thousands of dollars. In this telling, the pair orchestrated the attack, hiring bandits and possibly killing their fellow passengers in order to make off with all the money. But before they could be called in for official questioning, the pair disappeared. Some accounts say they resurfaced in San Francisco, where Kruger would eventually claim that Shepard died from her wounds, though reporters could never find a record of her death. Honestly, there are so many versions of what actually happened and about Kruger and Shepard that it's hard to entirely separate fact from rumor and hearsay. It's confusing enough that the Wickenburg Massacre was featured in a 1996 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Seriously, you can find it on YouTube if you're interested. But what we can say for sure is that news of the massacre incensed people across the country, hence why Crook was ready to ride to Date Creek and confront the Yavapai. However, it wouldn't be for roughly another year before campaigns would begin in earnest against those whom Crook and everyone else believed were responsible for the attack. So, why the delay? Well, the answer to that is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 64, 
The Christian General Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we introduced Lieutenant Colonel George R. Crook, the man who was tasked with bringing the Apache to Hill. Or at least that's what he wanted to do. First, he had to sit quiet and wait for Peace Commissioner Vincent Collier to come through first, blame the Americans for everything, and practically give away the store to every tribe he sat down with. Crook did not shed any tears once Collier was gone, or once the troublesome Quaker was ousted from his post following some internal politics. But just when Crook's campaign seemed to be getting back on track, he received news that President Ulysses S. Grant wasn't done trying to make peace through diplomacy. This time, however, he didn't send a civilian Quaker to deal with the problem. Instead, it's time for us to now introduce Brigadier General Oliver Otis Howard. Howard had been born in Maine in 1830 and graduated Bedoin College in 1850 at the age of 19. He afterward attended West Point, graduating fourth in the class of 1854. In the years following his graduation, Howard converted to evangelical Christianity with such zeal and piety that he was forever branded the Christian General. He would return to West Point in 1857 to teach mathematics, and to volunteer to be sort of a chaplain holding nightly prayer meetings. Once the Civil War broke out, he resigned his commission from the regular army to become a colonel of a volunteer force from Maine. In this position, he would experience several setbacks, most notably the loss of his right arm during the Battle of Fair Oaks in May 1862. He would also be disastrously outflanked at the Battle of Chancellorsville, but did a decent job during the Battle of Gettysburg. And though his extreme piety would manage to bemuse and or bug just about everyone, he did fall into the good graces of General William Tecumseh Sherman, who ensured Howard's position as Brigadier General after the war. By then he was assigned to head the Freedmen's Bureau under the Andrew Johnson administration, where the general consensus is that he was honest and hardworking, but his idealism and blind trust in the goodness of people led to rank corruption. But then he was tapped by Grant in 1872 to again talk peace with the Apaches. In this role, he was to have the same powers as were given to Collier, really more when you consider that Howard was a brigadier general in the army and literally outranked everyone he came across. Because of his rank and now infamous piety, Howard was seen as an acceptable choice by both the army and the religious leaders running the U.S.'s Indian policy at this point. Crook again fumed about being sidelined by yet another religious do-gooder, but there was still nothing he could do about it. He met with Howard in April 1872, and much like with Collier, this meeting was cordial, if not exactly warm. Howard actually had a lot of respect for Crook, even if it wasn't necessarily reciprocated. After their first face-to-face, -face, Crook would write, quote, I was very much amused at the general's opinion of himself. He told me that he thought the Creator had placed him on earth to be the Moses to the Negro. Having accomplished that mission, he felt satisfied his next mission was with the Indians. End quote. However, if Crook was expecting the second coming of Collier, he needn't had worried. Howard had his quirks, to be sure, but he was also a practical and pragmatic man. He was willing to listen to both sides, 
about the never-ending Apache raids in addition to the various massacres carried out against them. And he agreed with the reservation system, telling Crook that he should feel free to campaign against any bands determined not to live on them, even though the February 15, 1871 deadline we talked about last week had been temporarily canceled due to his own arrival. The general was also greeted warmly by Governor Anson P.K. Safford, and even by the press, which had excoriated Collier the previous year. Shortly after meeting with Crook, Howard traveled to Camp Grant, where he was met by Lieutenant Royal Whitman. Whitman had, by Howard's order by the way, actually just been released from arrest due to charges brought against him by Crook who could not stand the lieutenant. One author mentions that these were trumped-up charges, but remember that historian Thomas Sheridan tells us Whitman's habit of going on multi-day benders. During these drunken moments, he was known to pull guns on people, and even once called Crook, if you'll pardon the language, quote, a damn son of a bitch, end quote. So it's not like there wasn't some reason for having him locked up. Fortunately, though, he just so happened to be a friend of Howard, so he was dutifully released and brought back to Camp Grant. He would then introduce his benefactor to Eskimzin and the other Apache leaders there. Though Howard's piety did create an amusing incident at the outset. As the Apache were coming in to meet with him, Howard, gushing with thankfulness for the meeting, dropped to his knees in very loud vocal prayer. This behavior, which looked downright bizarre if he didn't speak English, thoroughly spooked the Apaches, who ran off. Whitman had to round them up and explain to Eskimizen that Howard wasn't practicing some sort of bad medicine against them. But once the Apache finally got to the meeting, they asked that Howard establish a new reservation for them, with Whitman as their agent. Though Eskimizen and his people didn't want to leave their ancestral territory, Camp Grant was being plagued with malaria, and many were itching to move someplace healthier. But highest on their list of demands was the return of the Apache children taken the previous year during the Camp Grant Massacre. Making notes of all of this, Howard set up a giant meeting with all parties about a month away on May 21st to finally hash everything out. He then left to confer with Crook and Governor Safford in Tucson, as well as meeting with Jesus Maria Elias and James McCaffrey. Elias, you will remember, was one of the principal instigators of the Camp Grant Massacre, while McCaffrey was a Maryland-born lawyer who had served as the defense counsel during the trial for those who had participated in it. These two were speaking on behalf of the adoptive families of the six Apache children that were identified as still living in Tucson. You may be asking yourself what happened to the remaining two dozen or so that had been stolen during the raid. Sad to say, Many were taken by the Odom and sold down in Mexico for anywhere between 50 and 100 bucks, while some were definitely still in Tucson but had somehow flown under Howard's radar. The Tucson families that had taken in these six identified children played on Howard's sympathies, asking him that they be allowed to remain in Tucson with good Christian families. As you might expect, that line of persuasion worked really well with Howard, who seemed to agree on the condition that the children in question were orphans. 
Fast forward now to May 21st, when a truly great council convened at Camp Grant. It included Governor Safford, various other officials, representatives from Tucson including William S. Aury, Elias N. McCaffrey, even Tohono Odom under Chief Francisco Galerita, and Akamel Odom under Chief Antonio Azul. Representatives of the Yavapai and Apache bands besides the Pinal and Aravipa were also present. Things started off well for Howard, who was called by the Apache Natan Bigandigode, or at least that's how I'm going to try to pronounce it, which translates to, Chief, his arm is shortened. The Amerindian leader sat and smoked with him before negotiations began in earnest, and at first it was the standard stuff, greetings followed by each side accusing the other of having done them wrong. The Apache said they wanted peace, while the Odom and those from Tucson told them that they wouldn't attack if the Apache would just stop their raiding. So far, so good. Then the issue of the children came up. And that's about when the spark moving up the fuse finally found the dynamite. Those representing the Tucson families asked to keep the children, and Howard announced his inclination to let them stay as long as the children were orphans. At this, Eskimizen blew his lid. Barely able to control his stutter, he yelled out the very valid point that of course the children were orphans. The very men wanting to keep them had in fact, you know, killed their parents. But they were still members of his band and had relatives that wanted them back. Total chaos then erupted as the Apaches tried to take the children back forcefully while the Tucsonans shielded them. McCaffrey, ever the lawyer, asked that a bond be put in place by the Apache, just in case the courts ruled that the children could be taken back to Tucson. That made Eskimizen even angrier, and he snorted back, did the Americans honestly expect them to sell their children like dogs? Many stormed out of the meeting at this point, with nothing decided. And according to author and historian Paul Andrew Hutton, Howard and Crook had an acrimonious run-in later that night, with Crook taking the Tucsonan side. Howard apparently didn't get to sleep until past 3 a.m., after hours spent under the Arizona night sky wrestling in prayer. The next day, he proposed a temporary solution. The children would not stay with the Tucsonans, but neither would they be given back to the Apache just yet. Instead, they were to be housed with the wife of a sergeant at Camp Grant, a good Catholic woman, as Howard pointed out, while the issue was debated at the highest level. This proposed compromise actually caused McCaffrey and the other Tucson residents to storm out of the meeting, but that didn't seem to slow things down at all. And since you are probably wondering, eventually President Grant himself would decree that the children be returned to their families. As to the other issues, Howard did promise to close the reservation at Camp Grant, and instead move the Aravipa and Pinal to a new spot, where San Carlos Creek meets the Gila River, a move that would be complete early the following year. The one thing he had to do was sacrifice Whitman, who would no longer be the Indian agent, ostensibly for health reasons. In reality, he had to sacrifice Whitman to keep peace with Arizona citizens and Crook, 
who would soon court-martial the lieutenant for the third time and cause him to resign. Still, looking back, Howard was pretty proud of what he had negotiated, recalling years later that at one special moment, all the leaders of the different tribes and the Mexicans embraced and he thought, surely the Lord is with us. Hutton points out that somehow, no one else there witnessed this special moment. As one last follow-up to this meeting, Howard induced leaders and members of the various Apache bands to come with him that summer to meet with the Great White Father in Washington, D.C. Eskimzin refused to go, but his father-in-law went. The ten-man party, Howard and a collective nine members of the Apache, Yavapai, and Odom, met with President Grant in late June 1872. They were each given a brand new blue suit, a medal, and $50. One of the Apache even received a glass eye, which became quite the sensation back home. The group also traveled up to New York to meet with Vincent Collier and members of the Dutch Reformed Church before eventually returning to Arizona, each one with a copy of the Bible, of course. But now that he was back in Arizona, Howard could turn to what he really wanted to do. You see, since he first got the gig, Howard's orders were to finally hunt down Cochise and make him sign a treaty, gosh dang nabbit. That was a tall order, and so, I'm sorry, but he's not going to accomplish it by the end of today's episode. Mainly because I want to talk in full about their meeting and how Howard eventually arranged it next week. But for now, we should probably talk about where Cochise actually was and what he has been up to. So, when we last left the aging and ailing great chief, it was the summer of 1871, and he was basically lying low to avoid run-ins with the military. Remember, this is when Crook had ridden out to face him, but wound up instead heading to Fort Apache, Camp Verde, and Prescott. In August 1871, members of Cochise's Chaconan Band rode into the reservation at Cañada Alamosa in New Mexico, bearing news that the Tohono O'odham had surprised Cochise's camp and scattered the band. Because of this, the harassment from U.S. soldiers and the fact that Cochise's health was starting to fail, he was ready to settle on a reservation. But his people didn't have enough horses to get them to Cañada Alamosa, so in true Apache fashion, they simply stole the animals they needed from Camp Crittenden and at Fronteras in Mexico. But Cochise did come up to the reservation, or at least the outskirts, to talk about it. This caused a minor press sensation, with several journalists accompanying the Indian agent to talk with the great boogeyman of the Southwest. In what can only be described as a prototypical press conference, Cochise spoke with the journalist, answering their questions. He would not talk extensively about his past crimes, rightly fearing retribution, but avowed that the Americans had started the conflict, but he now wanted nothing more than to just live and let live. Because of this interview, we have a description of Cochise as a, quote, tall and finely formed man, little indication of age. His hair is intensely black, his face smooth and slightly ornamented with yellow ochre. His mouth is splendidly formed and flexible, his nose prominent and his eyes express no ferocity. His countenance is pleasant, a sense of melancholy and thoughtfulness is clearly discernible. 
end quote. Cochise took the opportunity to tell the journalist, quote, Tell the people that I have come here to make peace, a good peace, that I like this country and wish to spend the remainder of my life here at peace with all men, end quote. Sigh, if wishing only made it so. You see, during these interviews, Cochise stressed two points. The first was he wanted to make sure everyone knew that his followers were going to settle at the reservation. But that didn't mean all the Chiricahua Apache or even all the Chaconan band would do the same. Cochise had a lot of pull and promised to bring in as many of his fellow Apache as he could, but he wanted to make sure he would not be blamed for raiding others did, like, you know, has been the story this entire time. The second was his emphatic desire not to move to Tularosa, the proposed new reservation east of the Rio Grande. Besides not being anywhere near their traditional territory, Tularosa was too close to the Navajos for the Chaconans' liking. It was also too swampy in the summer, too cold in the winter, with bad grass and bad water. Also, Cañada Alamosa had almost become like the new Janos, with an open market where Apache could come and go to exchange their admittedly mostly ill-gotten goods. To move to Tularosa or not became a major bone of contention. Cochise himself seems to have vacillated on the question, but ultimately came down on the side of not moving, despite all the pleas and inducements from Indian agents. He even warned them that if they tried to force the Chaconans, they were liable to revolt and flee. Now, the Americans went back and forth on this, and Collier himself went to bat to keep the Apache at Cañada Alamosa. Unfortunately, though, at the end of 1871, orders came down to herd everyone to Tularosa starting on May 1st, 1872. At this point, Cochise started pacing nervously. Rumblings were all around about the move. Plus, there was added pressure from Crook, who was dubious of Cochise's intentions. In Crook's view, Cochise should be forced to return to Arizona and there use all his influence to either stop Apache raiding or help the army track down those who were still responsible. Heaped onto all of this was the matter of the horses Cochise's band had stolen from Camp Crittenden to get to Cañada Alamosa. Some, including Crook, wanted those horses confiscated immediately. But fortunately, some more rational heads prevailed, and convenient excuses were found as to why that just couldn't be done. Just for more fun, everyone was continuing to pressure Cochise to take the trip to Washington and meet with the president. This the great chief routinely refused to do, extremely wary about placing his fate in the hands of Americans again. Finally, fights and disagreements were breaking out between Cochise's Chaconans and the Chihini band, whose territory they were technically in. Cochise himself was not staying at the main gathering spot in the reservation, but in the nearby mountains, becoming something of a recluse over the winter of 1871-72. A meeting was held in March 1872 with Colonel Gordon Granger, commander of the military district of New Mexico, about moving the Apache to Tularosa. 
Granger, with the pride that only comes right before the fall, is reported to have told Crook that Cochise, quote, will go wherever I direct him, end quote. During this meeting, Cochise strongly objected to moving to Tularosa, saying, quote, My blood was on fire, but now I have come into this valley and drunk of these waters and washed myself in them, and they have cooled me. I want to live in these mountains. I do not want to go to Tularosa. That is a long way off. The flies on those mountains eat out the eyes of the horses. The bad spirits live there. I have drunk of these waters, and they have cooled me. I do not want to leave here. End quote. Unfortunately, officials simply dismissed all of his objections. The Apache would need to relocate to Tularosa. In what I could only call a great bit of self-delusion, they then allowed Cochise to slip away from the reservation to go hunting. Somehow they also believed his transparent line about coming back and convincing others to come with him. In reality, as long as the Americans were pushing to La Rosa, Cochise was going to consider other options. So, on either March 30th or April 1st, 1872, Cochise slipped away from Cañada Alamosa. No one was entirely sure where he went, or if he even intended to come back. He appears to have gone back to the Chiricahua Mountains, though as we'll see, he didn't stay in Arizona too long, and turned once again to Mexico for shelter from American ambitions. Meanwhile, in New Mexico, the relocation to Tularosa went off without a hitch. If you were reading the propaganda. In reality, some 1,500 Apache had gone rogue instead of making the move, more than four times the amount that had actually gone to the new reservation. Officials somehow remained hopeful that Cochise would return to the reservation and settle down at Tularosa, but that hope faded as spring turned to summer and reports of Apache depredations suddenly jumped. Indeed, witnesses put Cochise down at Hanos, where he was floating the idea of a treaty with the Mexicans in exchange for a place to settle down. However, a series of Mexican offensives soon persuaded him to relocate back to Arizona proper, which is where he was after early July 1872. With few other options, Cochise sent out warriors to make a living, if you catch my drift. Heavy raiding and skirmishing once again commenced throughout southern Arizona. Cochise himself was now done raiding, and stuck mainly to planning forays while grooming his son Tassa to succeed him. His movements were unknown at the time, but it appears that by the middle of summer he was back in the Dragoon Mountains, but mobile enough to decamp for the Chiricahuas or Mexico if it came to it. In the meantime, raiding continued on and on, with fighting breaking out across southeastern Arizona. However, Cochise knew this was unsustainable. He could see that soldiers were starting to swarm all over his traditional haunts, that he was losing people, and that he himself was not long for this world. There is even some indication that he might have actually wondered if moving to Tularosa wouldn't have been better for himself and his people in the long run. But if he did entertain those thoughts, he apparently didn't entertain them for too long. Raiding continued, with new attacks and murders reported weekly. Predictably, this caused everyone to doubt Cochise's declarations of peace from just the previous winter. 
After all, wasn't there a pattern here? He had talked peace with Captain Perry in February 1869, and Major Green in 1870, and had even stayed at Cañada Alamosa in 1871 and again in 1872. But each time he went off the reservation, literally off the reservation, and was right back to raiding. As Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney says, very few cared or bothered to understand why those peace talks had all broken down. All they knew was that Cochise, the great and terrible, was again out and about. We are going to leave everyone there in that precarious place for this week, because next week we will deal with Howard as he finally does what everyone thought was impossible. Just a few months after all the raiding and killing had started up again in earnest, the Christian general will manage to finally make a lasting peace with the great chief. No ifs, ands, or buts this time. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.